Hello, and welcome to Industry Elites. On this podcast, Industry Elite's very own Natalie and Vicky are going to be interviewing business owners and individuals who have made their mark in their respective industries. Peter Lowe's was born with entrepreneurial spirit in a small town in Scotland. At a young age, he moved to the north of England. In 1982, Peter embarked on a year-long journey aboard a 65-foot sailboat. After his ocean voyage, he arrived in Long Beach, California, where he began working in the investment real estate field. In 1994, Peter relocated to Bend, Oregon, where he currently resides. In 1997, he founded Compass Commercial Real Estate Services with three other partners. While growing the successful business, he continually sought for other opportunities to fuel his entrepreneurial passion. In 2007, Peter founded the Lowe's Group, a full-service residential, commercial, and property management real estate company. In the second half of 2007, with help of local restaurateur Marcos Rodriguez, Peter founded the first Ola Nuevo Mexican-Peruvian restaurant. Since then, Peter and Marcos have opened six Ola locations in total. In 2005, Peter, along with several partners, founded Tokyo Starfish, a leading cannabis dispensary company in Oregon. Tokyo Starfish was recently awarded by Source Magazine as the best dispensary in Central Oregon for 2020. Currently, Peter and his partners are preparing their launch for their fifth Tokyo Starfish location in Oregon and have plans for further expansion in the future. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Industry Elites. We're really excited to welcome Peter Lowe's on our podcast for this week. So, Peter, thank you for coming on with us today. My pleasure. Good afternoon, ladies. Yes, good afternoon. So, I think one of our icebreaker questions and what we're starting with when we ask a lot of our uh, podcast guests is, how are you doing? So, how has COVID treated you? Are you doing well? Are you liking kind of slowing down of things? Or are you excited for us to kind of put COVID behind us and get the ball rolling again? Oh, gosh, Um, that's a huge question, isn't it? It is. It's loaded. Yeah, because COVID has affected, you know, so many lives in so many countries around the world. And I, I sort of take the lead on really what New Zealand has been doing. I have a lot of friends that are Kiwis. In that country, for example, they don't have too many active cases of COVID at all, but they are extremely strict on their procedures and lockdowns. I have a a friend that is on her way there right now, and when she gets there, they're only accepting residents of New Zealand. The army is controlling all all people arriving, and she is under a two-week strict quarantine when she gets there. And this is how they're limiting the spread of COVID in that country. And I think you know, it's going to be hard to implement, but unless countries follow suit, we're going to be on this for the long haul. Yeah, I think it is definitely looking at a country by country basis. And we were even saying right in the beginning of like how everything was taking place, it was essentially something that we didn't know how long it was going to be here, if that makes sense. So now the fact that we're realizing, oh, hey, this thing's not going away as quickly as we thought. It's very much starting to be integrated into our norms and going to the grocery store and having to wear a mask. Well, now that's something everybody knows, you're just bringing the mask with you. But then at that point, I was like forgetting my mask. I'm like, do I even have to wear one? And then I'm like, oh my gosh, yes, we do. So there's just so many things you're thinking about that you never really thought about before. And we're we're definitely in a different mentality, we can say for sure. Yeah, you know, it's funny. You leave the house and you would always be sort of, oh, gosh, do I have my wallet, my glasses, uh, my keys? 
but now you've got to add, add mass to that list. Yeah. So it becomes like so many times when you get out of your car and you're walking somewhere and you go, oh gosh, my mask, I've got to go back for my mask. Yeah. And I think what's happening right now is that we're seeing where we're starting to get in the start of the second wave. If you look back a hundred years to the, the Spanish flu, the second wave was the most devastating. Uh, and so we're just entering that now and numbers are on the rise. So I think the lot of lot state by state, I think we're going to see a lot more lockdowns occurring. Yeah, especially with I believe it was yesterday it was announced that the UK is going back into their second. I would call it more like their fourth, but um, the most severe version of their second lockdown. And that's just kind of back to square one. And we've even had that here in Canada, or at least in Ontario, we've had select cities more of the kind of bigger ones like toronto ottawa and like peel region which is pretty much the entire surrounding area of toronto we went back into a second lockdown which they are still in at the moment like halloween was canceled for them they're not allowed to have their social bubbles anymore um, restaurants are closed they went way back kind of like almost to the beginning of lockdown for their second wave so it'll be interesting to see when they get out of that or if the rest of the province is going to follow same with even like the uk if it's gonna kind of fizzle over to the rest of it and see how that goes yeah interesting yeah yeah they they, they just started i think this thursday they're starting the four-week mandatory lockdown in uk yeah remember when we thought this was only going to be two weeks <laughs> remember that the joke was on us we got totally pranked okay oh <laughs> It was good times for that. Yeah. Do you recall someone at the uh, head of state saying this will all miraculously disappear one day? I mean, we could hope so. We could definitely hope so. So you've had your fair share of travel throughout your life and you weren't originally from the United States. You had grown up in Scotland and moved to England and eventually ended up moving to the United States. So how did you find that transition of growing up in one country and then eventually find your way to the United States? Did you see big cultural differences? Was it very much the same? What was what was that experience like for you? Oh, it was fantastic. You know, from a young age, I always enjoyed travel and I had the opportunity to jump on a sailboat in my early 20s right after college. That journey led me to uh, far off lands and islands and I, I just fell in love with travel. That was when I first got exposed to the really the climate crisis because even then back in the 80s, I saw the pollution occurring in the oceans and You'd come across these plastic islands even back then. That's when I, I first started realizing that we could have environmental crisis in the future. My last port of call was the U.S. Virgin Islands, and I jumped ship from there to the West Coast. Really only going to stay in California for a, a few weeks, but unfortunately somebody duped me out of my traveling money. Posing, posing as an attorney, <laughs> which, which was sort of my naivety and welcome to California. But yeah, I met a fellow and I said, my, my visa was about to expire. He said, oh, I can get your visa extended for you. I said, well, how much is it going to cost? And he said, well, how much money do you have? I said, well, I've got $1,500. He said, well, it's funny. That's how much it costs. So in my naivety, I gave him my money. Turns out he wasn't an attorney, so I was I was forced to stay and get a job. And during that time, I, because I had a background in accounting, I was able to garner employment and stay. I was actually on my way to Alaska. We had some uh, distant friends that had a, a timber farm that had these romantic notions of being a lumberjack in Alaska. 
but in hindsight, I'm sort of glad I didn't make it up there. Well, I know it's quite harsh and quite cold, and I don't think I would have survived too well. Yeah, I stayed in California. It was a fantastic experience there. From there, I made my way uh, up to Oregon. About that time, California was starting to get a little crazy, and there was riots going on with the Rodney King thing and the OJ thing had just happened. There was a little bit of civil unrest going on, similar to what we have today, in fact. And I just didn't want to be in Southern California anymore. And I told my wife that I said, listen, I really want to go to New Zealand because I love New Zealand. And she said, well, I want to move to Oregon because that's, she had family and she was raised in Oregon. So, of course, I lost that argument. We ended up moving to Oregon. It went to band, raised kids. It was a small town back then. It was a wonderful, wonderful experience. Sort of became my part-time home. Well, that is super exciting. It looks like you kind of definitely traveled around the world a lot. So I was just reading your bio here, and it says you started out in real estate. So when you first entered real estate, what would you say the biggest obstacle you had to overcome? Oh, accepting rejection. Fair. <laughs> <laughs> because it happens all the time. They threw me they threw me to the wolves pretty much and said, Okay, you're gonna start cold calling people. You know, for every fifty calls you'd make, probably get one potential maybe yes, but most people would just hang up. I mean you know, it's similar if you if you get a phone solicitation call now. It's not so not so prevalent with because everybody has cell phones now, but back when everybody had landlines, you know, somebody would call up and start pitching you something and you just get the click. Then I sort of had a little bit of a, an advantage because people would say, I'm really not interested in real estate, but where are you from? And I'd say, well, I'm, you know, from England. Oh, well, we have, we have relatives and such and such, or my grandfather's from, you know, Scotland or Ireland. So you would be an icebreaker. And so it ended up my cold call rate got a little better and I uh, was able to, uh, I use the old uh, British accent to, to an advantage for once. I'm kind of like looking lazily to get into the market at the moment. And I find um, all these websites to see the listings. You have to sign up. And of course, when you sign up, they call you. I have gotten emails. I have gotten phone calls. I've gotten texts. I've literally gotten people texting me going like, you're not answering your phone. What's up? And I'm like, this is getting like creepy. <laughs> like the cold call is different now. Like it's a whole revolution of how many ways we can get a hold of someone. <laughs> and how many ways you can hang up on them. That too. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the thing, right? So the, there's a lot of companies out there that have figured out that lead generation is massive. You know, these different sites where if you go on and you can look at any property, but you are getting redirected to a broker lead, it's not the listing broker. These sites make money from converting people like yourself uh, into from a cold lead into a warm lead. Yeah, no, it's crazy the differences of things. So one of the other questions that we were curious about that we actually had was, especially coming from a different country, was there differences you knew even like in terms of the sale of homes, like what you knew about the housing market, where you had come from, and then coming to the United States? Was it like vastly different? Were there similarities, like even in the style of homes people like? A massive differences, especially working as a broker, the commission structure was far, far more advantageous in the US. England real estate agents or brokers are called uh, estate agents. Typically, the maximum fee that is split between estate agents over there is 1%. 
Whereas when I came to the US, it was 6%, which was split between two brokers. So almost six times as much. So it's far more incentive to broker property. And then, you know, you in England, everybody uses attorneys to uh, lawyers to, to broker transactions. Yeah. And here, the, the agents do the majority of the work. And 99% of the time, attorneys are not involved. Seem to be, you know, a little more archaic back in England in terms of how transactions are consummated. U.S., I, I mean, back when I started in real estate, and this is going to age me dramatically, but we didn't even have fax machines. So when you received an offer uh, or wrote an offer, you wrote it on this three-page contract, hand-wrote it or typed it, and then you had to, had to drive across town, deliver it to the other broker. So there was always a foot race. You know, if there's a new property came on the market that was hot, then people made offers and it was sort of, you had to be Johnny in the spot. So you had these brokers racing around everywhere. And then when the advent of fax machines occurred, we just thought, oh my gosh, this is amazing. Amazing. And, but, it, you know, sometimes the, the fax machines get a little glitchy and you'd print paper the, and the words would get stretched out and you'd have a, a one-page contract that would be about four feet long. And it was that thin paper, sort of that transparent paper, you know, that was almost like loo roll toilet paper. And then, gosh, you know, fast forward to now, everything's done with email and, and things like DocuSign, where you don't even have to get away from your computer. Everything can just be blasted off your screen. So the business has changed. Like everything else with the advance of technology, everything's sort of gone into warp speed. Definitely. I can see the transition there, even with like your cell phone, like that's just something where it's like people are probably like texting offers and stuff like that now. And it's like the race of the text message versus like the race of like driving in your car to deliver someone the offer type of situation. Yeah, no, my, I remember my first cell phone came with a battery that was about the size of a briefcase that you would plug into and the, the cell phone itself was about $1,500 and it was about, it was bigger than the, the old house phone. You know, this thing was about a foot long. It was heavy, but gosh, you were cool if you had a, a mobile phone, but the, the charge wouldn't last very long. You'd have to hook it up to this massive battery that you carry around with you that was heavy. Advancements being astronomical with uh, cell phone technology. That's hilarious. I remember when my dad got his first cell phone and it it was this rogers thing and it, it literally looked like an army field phone it didn't have a backpack but it was that size with the giant floppy antenna like he would literally put it in his briefcase and like that was his briefcase exactly no they were so cumbersome and they were very uh, temperamental a lot of times they wouldn't work and <laughs> It's, try, it's hard to be hard to do business with a phone that doesn't work and try to look cool when you're banging this thing on the dashboard. My phone doesn't work. <laughs> it's true. I remember that too because I had a better chance of getting hold of him on his pager than I did on his cell phone. And I remember being like six years old, being like, this is dumb. Like your phone doesn't work. That was a thing. If you So when you got to be the sort of a high-level broker back then, you were carrying – probably two pages, which usually were attached to your belt, so you look pretty dorky. You're carrying this briefcase with a cell phone. Then you've got all your files. So you just sort of were loaded down with all this supposed technology. But it was, you know, I mean, who? Had, when was the last time you saw anybody with a pager, right? 1999. <laughs> right. Yeah, or before. That's a good – because two ways were a thing after that. And they – I don't think they really kicked off, but they were like – 
if anyone remembers those pagers that had like texting oh those were the days <laughs> so it sounds like you were pretty up on all the technology what would you say separated you from others in real estate you know i think one of the greatest separators in the business and that's where i tell new brokers is perseverance if you get knocked down you just got to keep getting up everybody gets knocked down it's just whether or not you decide to pull yourself up by the bootstraps and keep going and not taking no for an answer it's not sort of stubbornness but it's more perseverance and just sort of getting up doing the basics uh, i always say there's three keys in real estate i always say this any new broker you've got to be available you've got to be amiable and you've got to be knowledgeable and most brokers have two out of three nailed but when you get all three out of three you really cannot help but succeed. You know, there's a lot of very friendly, available brokers out there, but they don't have enough knowledge of the market. There's a lot of knowledgeable brokers, but they don't pick up the phones. That's my that's sort of my three keys to success in the world of real estate. And perseverance. Nothing takes the place of perseverance. Yeah, yeah. I can definitely see that being a thing with realtors on kind of like the attitude and that go-getter kind of thing to make that sale to kind of find that home for your prospective clients. Sticking with the theme of the day that everyone's talking about with COVID still, what do you think the future of real estate looks like with kind of the uncertainty of kind of the market? Um, I don't know about you guys, but here we have like new COVID protocols for looking at houses and a lot of it has actually gone as virtual tours instead of physically doing open houses. Yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of clients out there say home sellers that don't feel comfortable with people walking through their house because of, you know, there's so much unknown with COVID, right? And it's been airborne and they don't know how long it can stick the surfaces really. And, and so for that reason alone, you know, when was the last time you saw an open house sign? I, it's, been, it's been a long time, right? And in terms of how COVID is affecting the market, what I predicted in March this year when this first started happening, and I've been talking about pandemics through my, foundation uh, as something that's going to be happening. I started talking about it years ago, extremes in weather, we can get to that pandemics. But now that we had a pandemic upon us, I predicted that people would migrate from the major metro areas because they would not want to be so close to many rats in the cage, right? And so they'd want to migrate to areas where you've got more elbow room and more breathing space. The rural areas what I've experienced in the last six months are really lifting off. And there's a massive migration from the big cities, San Francisco, Seattle, Los Angeles. And people are moving all over to getting out of the highly condensed areas. It's definitely something I think a lot of people are considering. And as you said, that's something that you've seen people are experiencing as well or leaning towards. So I think this is something that Vicky wants answered, a question she wants answered. Do you think that there's hope for young people to get into the market? I know for Canada, it's really difficult. Like the home buying spectrum for individuals just starting out is Really, is really high. So I don't know if that translates. Yeah, I don't know if that translates in the U.S. as well. Uh, maybe you can shed a bit of light on that. Well, exactly. The the only the sort of only potential inroad, I think, is interest rates. I'm not sure how your rates are right now if they're following suit in the U.S. Rates in the U.S. are very low, so it's making entry level buying easier than it has been for a long time. Sub three percent interest rates. What do, what are your rates right now up in Canada? They're pretty low. You can get a mortgage rate at like 
1.99, pretty standard at the moment. So what I would recommend is is try to buy something in more of a the outlying rural areas if you can. And, and I don't know where you guys are located and how the geography, what the lay of the land is. But if you can, you know, look for that. Because I, I think properties in rural areas are going to become a premium in years to come. And so you're going you're gonna to have a really good, what I consider a land bank, for, for example. Um, so I don't know if you can kind of think, okay, where, where do I go where I maybe have to drive an extra 15, 20 minutes to work, but yet I'm a little bit out of the, out of the hub. With us, so we're about an hour outside of Toronto. So we're kind of in a, a major city on the outside of Toronto. So there's a lot of small towns and kind of farmland and in like intersection towns surrounding us. And at least I found from looking, there is a mass exodus out of Toronto right now. People are buying up these kind of rural areas very quickly and driving the prices up, which is not in my favor at the moment. I'm bitter about it, can you tell? <laughs> but I, I completely understand why, because like I'm currently in kind of an outskirt city and I live downtown in that city. And the whole point of getting my current place was because it's walking distance to all the bars and restaurants. It's walking distance to shops, to stuff to do, little festival, like street festivals. But now with COVID, there's literally no point in living here. When you think about the whole point of living here was to do things. It's not so bad now that restaurants are open, but when this first started in March, I was literally like, I'm in a concrete cell. Like I have no balcony at this place either. So I was like, I have no outside. I was literally going to my parents' house to sit on the patio <laughs> to just be in the air. So I definitely get why people do want to go more rural. And especially if we're going to stick to this remote working setup, you could move incredibly far away from your office and you'd be quite fine. Well, you know, that's a really interesting point there. You know, they did a survey uh, recently and they said that about 35% of people that have been working from home from COVID have said they do not want to go back to the office. They want to continue working from home. So what we're seeing is a massive gap starting to occur in the office leasing market across the nation in the commercial leasing market because there's not as much need for office space. So that's going to cause a slide in office values. And, you know, whereas in, in certain sectors of the real estate market, such as residential, rural areas, the market is what we consider frothy. It's white hot. There's going to be areas of the commercial market that are going to suffer. You know, a lot of big boxes have gone out. You've seen all the bankruptcies and foreclosures. Big companies like Pier 1 in the States have gone out. There's, they think that potentially 45% of independent restaurants might go out of business by the end of this year in the US. I mean, the numbers are staggering. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense because I was reading an article the other day and it was about commuter culture and they were just so, I'm sure you've heard, but here in Canada, for some reason, we're oddly obsessed with Tim Hortons. They, this article was saying that Tim Hortons is getting a major decline in sales because people aren't buying coffee in the morning and just... As simple as that, a coffee gets an upsell of a breakfast sandwich or a donut or what have you, and they are not making these sales literally at all. And we also have a Tim Hortons on literally every corner. 
but uh, it's kind of interesting to see how everything is linked. And I've also seen a lot of things with like clothing retail because you're not going to work. You're not buying work clothes. You're not getting that coffee. You're not going to, I don't know, hair salons and stuff as much often. It's just kind of really funny to take a step back and really see how big not going to work is like affecting things. Yeah. So, so this is the, like the real big picture, right? So I think, in my opinion, we haven't seen the recession hit yet because there's been a bunch of money pumped into the market, stimulus. There's been a lot of stimulus loans. There's been a lot of unemployment checks written. So the economy's been a little bit bubbly because when people get, let's say, stimulus money, they spend it. And so you're not seeing the stock market crash. You're not seeing any of this. But when you look at the big picture and you fast forward, the ripple effects are going to create a big wave. And I think that wave is going to come in the form of a recession. And that's when the, that's the time if you can wait to look to buy a house, you might see some, uh, some value. Especially when I'm banking on as horrible as it is, as I'm really starting for. Thanks, Vicky. <laughs> um, so our stimulus is called CERB. Our CERB checks are still going. So people get, I believe it's two grand a month and it's been going since March. Here, we haven't really seen, like you said, a lot of the big hits of this pending recession. And I was kind of waiting for the CERB to stop because the money will run out eventually. Like the government can't do this forever. So as horrible as it sounds, is I'm really waiting for people to start losing their shirts so I can buy a house. Well, yeah. So that that uh, that's your Canada Emergency Response Benefit Fund, and you, if you're eligible, yeah, you can receive two thousand a week. And I think it was just for a short period, but I'm sure, like everything else, it's been extended. So you're absolutely right. In the U.S., there was a lot of people that were working in, let's say, the restaurant business, working in the kitchen, and they realized they were getting more money through stimulus checks, so they just quit their jobs. So now all these restaurants, even if they could open, can't staff them. But when that money runs out, you're absolutely right. When that money runs out, that's when things are going to hit the fan. That's when the slide slide's going to occur. But right now, people are still well. Well, we got money coming in, so there's not you know there's not as much of a an incentive to uh, to work. It's true. I know of people that have worked in kind of the service industry and. It's more in their benefit to work minimal to keep their job, but to collect the CERB just because it's more money than they would have ever made in a month. See, that's crazy. I mean, it, it makes sense if they're the individual looking at it, but when you're looking at it from like the perspective of like how long this will continue for, it's like at some point, uh, whether it's in Canada or in the States, we're all going to be paying back into whatever some people have already utilized. So that's the concerning part is like, as long as they're continuing something, that's essentially going to just end up delaying the decline, but we're still going to have that decline. So I think we want to change up our discussion and really focus on another subject matter. Well, we know, and as we're going to talk about, you are definitely an entrepreneur, Peter. Everything that you've been able to accomplish, you have the entrepreneurial spirit. So how would you say that developed? Oh, gosh, it's, uh, you know, I grew up in a very poor family in England. You know, most of the clothes I wore up until I was about 16 were hand-me-downs. 
So we were super poor. So I was always motivated not be impoverished as I got older. And I didn't want, if I had kids, I didn't want them to grow up the same way as I did. So I was always motivated. But what I found from a very early age was that the more I sort of gave of myself, my time, money, whatever it was, the more sort of things came back in return. So I sort of called it the platinum rule in my life. And being successful in business, I think, is directly related to uh, how much you give back to the community, to others, and, and not just in money, but in, in your time, friendship, advice, whatever you can do. So I'm just, I've been a massive believer in, in giving. It morphed into running businesses. There were lots of businesses that sort of came my way, and I just had a hard time saying no and trying to figure out a way to buy them. There's been failures along the way, and there's been some successes, but that's sort of my whole uh, MO. That's fair. How important would you say passion is to you for the work that you do? Oh, I mean, I think you've got to love what you do. And I, I encourage anyone that's, you know, getting involved in their work to, to really enjoy it. Otherwise, it's just going to be work, right? Uh, if you enjoy what you're doing, it doesn't feel like work. I think that's something that sometimes people not forget, but I think people just get lost in like a job is a job. And then you always hear people that are sometimes like not complaining in a sense, because I think we all need a good complaining session, but just more so they're just not loving what they're doing and they're getting tired of it. And when it comes to that certain point, they're just essentially over it. But then you see the transition of just the people even we've had on these episodes and talking to them. And they're saying like, doing what you love, it like doesn't feel like a job. So exactly what you're saying there. So I think that's something a lot of people should take into consideration. Yeah. And along with that, I've always considered myself unemployable. I mean, if I worked for me, I'd fire me, you know, just because I, I, don't, I don't abide by the same rules as everybody else. I don't like being told what to do. I like to, you know, sometimes I'll work at midnight and sometimes I'll work at four in the morning and sometimes I'll, I'll sleep at noon. That, that right there is terms of grounds for termination with any employment. So when I first started working as an accountant, I, I worked with this guy in Newcastle, England. He always looked like he was always working so hard and he was always looking and we had to do these spreadsheets by hand. So had this massive spreadsheet in front of his desk and it took me about three months to realize that he was sleeping with his eyes open. And he had a pen in his hand, and I went, gosh, that's, that's brilliant. And I always remembered that. But I could never perfect the art of sleeping with your eyes open. So I, you know, I just realized I couldn't work for anybody else. Very true. So clear, clearly you picked up some tips along the way uh, and through your journey and through each of your endeavors. But is there any of those tips that you can share with others who are just starting in the world of entrepreneurship? Well, yeah, I mean, never give up. You know, if you have a if you have a dream or a vision of something you want to do, don't don't give up on it. Believe in yourself first and foremost. I'm not a gambler in life. Uh, I never I never buy a lottery ticket. I never you know gamble at a, a card table or craps table or anything like that. But the only person I've ever gambled on is myself. And I think I tell people gamble on yourself because you're the best bet out there. I love that. Yeah, no, that's awesome. I know I can't gamble either. I probably would lose. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Actually, on that note, kind of pivoting to one of your career changes, moving to the restaurant industry and launching Ola Restaurant. How did that transition go? How did you go about that? And why did you decide to make that choice? Oh, gosh. Um, there's a, 
a fellow in our town that came to me and he knew I was involved in certain businesses. And I grew up in the restaurant business a little in it in England. My folks had a bar and I think part of the reason why we never had any money was my father was um, uh, in love with alcohol. So, you know, you put a guy that owns a bar who was an alcoholic at the helm and it's a recipe for disaster. So you just drank all the profits. But uh, I did have a lot of experience in the restaurant industry. And there was a, a guy in town, he came to me and he said, uh, you know, would you consider starting a restaurant with me? I've got no money, but I've got a lot of experience. And I said, yeah. So I found a spot and he had all these ideas for a name. He said, I want to call it the Dos Amigos or the Trace This. And I said, you know, I know this is going to sound crazy to you, but I want to, I want to call the restaurant Hello in Your Language. I want to call the restaurant Hola. And he said, Okay. And so now when everybody comes in the restaurant, you know, we have six of them now and people say, hola. And this just becomes sort of a, a theme and a, a pretty good trend. So yeah, so hola started 15 years ago. We started with one location and, and now we have six and it's been a great ride. Fortunately, you know, with COVID, we are getting hit with all these restrictions. So they, they say right now in the U.S., by the end of the year, it's probably about $250 billion in lost revenue for restaurants. And that's just, again, you know, we look at, look at the big picture and the ripple effects going forward. I don't think we can help but start entering into a recession in the next year or two. So obviously, it's very difficult when you're having to keep up with all of these changes. How did you guys work to implement that? Was this... Because obviously, no one really has these types of plans already in effect before this this COVID started. How did you guys work about those changes? We had to focus more on outdoor seating. In our town, it's fantastic in the summertime. But now that now that the weather's changing, we, we get pretty severe winters in central Oregon. That's where it's going to get interesting because people don't want to sit outside. Even if you have, you know, the gas heaters, it's hard to sit outside when it's snowing and you know, your feet are cold, your hands are cold. It's not exactly the dining experience that most people look for. So it's going to be interesting. I think that's going to be, it's going to be a rough winter in the restaurant world, especially in the colder climates. California, for example, where it, the weather's always quite nice throughout the year, they're doing just fine. They've, they've created a lot of the, the car parks. Again, it's not, it doesn't have the, ambi- doesn't have the ambience of inside a restaurant, but people still have a need, right? And to go out even more so because of COVID, have a need to connect. Because that's what's been happening with COVID is a lot of people have lost connection and they've been forced inside. You know, you've been forced, as you said, uh, I think you said it earlier, inside your sort of your concrete, your concrete walls, your concrete jail. Yeah, it's actually kind of funny you mentioned the outdoor um, dining because so the last couple of days we've been kind of, select areas near us have been getting the first snowfall um toronto got their first snowfall and i've been seeing a lot on social media um people that are like waitresses and waiters they're out cleaning the tables to the patios but there's snow on them and it's it's just kind of funny because it's like they do have those heaters but it kind of gets to the point where it's like we should really call this soon guys like i don't know how do you do that? Like, like you said, that's kind of having to change the dynamic of like, I guess, making that a fun thing for people to like to recognize like, oh, like you get to eat outside and like with heaters in your winter coats, as opposed to people seeing that as like, 
a negative thing, I guess. Like people would have to transition that in their mind to be like, okay, if you want to go out, this is what you're going to kind of have to do. You know, I've just said that I think the delivery services really have really taken off the, the companies that deliver food. Uh, again, because of this paranoia, right? People don't want to go in, into a restaurant in general now as much as they used to. So unless you can sit outside, they don't really want to sit inside as much. Yeah, that's fair. I was going to say the only instance I've seen this work is in Ottawa. So they get a lot of snow up there and it is incredibly cold all the time. But they have... I would say they have a lot um, kind of in their downtown core of these outdoor, I'm going to call them like campfire bars. And they do have like actual fire pits and like you get a lap blanket and like everyone's kind of bundled up. So it'd be kind of interesting to see if, I don't know, they make some open flame regulation or something to kind of make this more appealing throughout the colder months or if it's just going to kind of die. Yeah, no, it's a great point. So typically what happens when you get that open flame situation happening is we looked into this in uh, in, in Oregon, uh, the fire department gets involved and they go, no, no, you can't have people anywhere near this, you know, open flame and they shut it down right away. So it becomes a fire hazard and also a burning hazard. Well, I guess that makes sense. If, like a kid comes too close and then like, yeah. God forbid something yeah. happens and it's like, oh my gosh, who's in trouble for that? Like, that's just like a whole other like dark hole of I'm sure issues and problems that could be caused so i can i can see where that could be a quite a dilemma <laughs> oh yeah Law, lawsuit city right it's just going to be you know the attorneys are rubbing their hands on that one but oh yeah i have a bunch of fires oh my gosh <laughs> who knows so out of all of the roles in the different industries that you're able to work in what would you say was your favorite and why well, favorite right now is the foundation that I'm working on, which is trying to you know, help save the planet, save our environment, because we're in we're in trouble. Yeah, we're we're getting close to the point of no return with the environment. The weather patterns are becoming more extreme. The wildfires are getting out of control. The oceans are warming, and if we as a race do not start to pay attention to what is actually happening here and now, we're sort of doomed for uh, extinction. So I don't, don't, yeah, don't mean to be depressing, but that's just. <laughs> no, but it, it's the truth. It's what's, it's what's going on. So no, we definitely like to have those real and truthful discussions too. Even though we're laughing, laughing is good. Serious conversation. It's all good. <laughs> yeah. I think for me, we kind of really put it into perspective on kind of how crazy the world's going is the. California fires that happened, which are probably still actually happening. It's just not in the news anymore. But we got the smoke from that. And I don't know how far away we are, but we're like a five-hour flight at minimum away. It was so bizarre, too, because I remember when the first day it showed up, it was maybe about 7 o'clock p.m. And I just got out of the grocery store, and I'm standing in the parking lot. And I'm just staring at the sun because I'm like, this is weird. Like, this is not what the sun looks like. And it just looked like a perfect orange ball. And the sky was completely, like, hazed over. Like, it was dust fogs. And it was just so bizarre. And then I'd go and I'd Google it. And then the news was basically like, yeah, by the way, the smoke had made it to Ontario. And to me, that really, like, connected all of it because it's no longer a, oh, it's in California. It doesn't affect me. Well, yeah, yeah, but it's crazy, right? So, you know, it used to be uh, not so long ago, uh, fire season typically was about 
50 days annually, you know, when you were sort of looking at fighting wildfires. But now we're up to over 150 days. The costs are insane. It costs billions of dollars to combat fires and clean it up. And the impacts of wildfires are widespread in that when older structures start to burn, a lot of them contain asbestos, right? And asbestos, once it gets uh, becomes inflammable, it's really toxic in the air. So the particles get pushed up into that smoke. So not only are you breathing, you know, smoke from the the fuel that's burning, but you 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 know, there's all kinds of particulates. And the reason the wildfires are getting more out of control is that it, you've got to look at climate change. Well, there's more fuel to burn. Temperatures are increasing. We're not getting as much rainfall. And so it's, you know, a lot of fires are a human error, cigarette butts, campfires. but And so the amount of fires are, are going to continue to increase as we see temperatures increase. So you started your foundation. Maybe tell us a little bit about what led you to start that. So obviously environmental advocacy is really important to you. But starting a foundation or organization is a very obviously large undertaking. So when did you get to the point when you're like, I just, we have to do something. Like, I want to make that difference. It first started, rang home from when I spent some time on a sailboat. That was decades ago. And I saw the the plight of the oceans back then. I, and I always wanted to do something. But it wasn't until the last couple of years that I've had the time and the resources to actually launch it and surround myself with some people that could help me. But um, the foundation is called T, like the drink tea, but which is an acronym for Teaching Environmental Awareness. The website, if you want to check it, is teatogether.org. O-R-G. We um, we just want to, as our mission is just to increase environmental education across all countries, and we want to want to fund postgrad scholarships, people that want to get into the world of environmental law, environmental science, environmental engineering. We've got to you know create better mouse traps. We've got to try to educate people because I think people make decisions, bad decisions based on lack of education. Most people don't realize that it takes 50 times as much water to feed a meat eater as it does a vegetarian. Because of our reliance on meat products, you know, we're killing billions and billions of animals every year just to satisfy our our need to eat. Those animals need grains so we're cutting down rainforests to graze animals, and in doing so, we're just creating more CO2 in the atmosphere. So it becomes this lose-lose situation for the planet. And if people in general would think about eating more plant-based, vegetarian, vegan options, it would help help slow down the impacts of the environmental. With kind of the time of fake news and all these horrible articles kind of surfacing on Facebook now, does the lack of awareness kind of bother you? And if there's something that people can be doing to educate themselves on these issues? Yeah, I mean, you do do the research. If you think something's non-factual, it's pretty easy to fact check. There's a lot of fake news out there. But as a, as a people, there's two things we can do is stop relying so much on fossil fuels. You know, use a bike, walk, don't use motorized craft or vehicles as much. Just try to stop eating as much uh, in the way of animal products. Dairy and beef industry causes massive amounts of destruction to our waterways, our forests, and just the uh, the atmosphere. We have such a reliance on uh, meat and dairy, and we don't need it. 
our bodies and our planet will will be better off. We'd be better off physically and as a species if we can eat more plants and vegetables. And 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 again, there's a lot of suffering that goes into the eating of animals. If slaughterhouses had glass walls, nobody would eat meat. Probably not. As you were talking, I was thinking about it, and I was wondering, well, what leads people to and to not eat meat? And I would think that it's kind of you're you're not focusing on it. Like you're trying to ensure that you're not aware of the situation or what's going on, and you just turn like that blind eye, and you're like, okay, well, whatever's happening to get this to here, I'm not really thinking about it. I'm just thinking about the meal that's on my table or what I'm going to buy in the store because I need to make this and this recipe. But yeah, if people were to really think about the extent of what goes into it, you're definitely right. Like I, you, it would be hard for people to more so argue in a sense how this is okay if they were look or shown all the facts in front of their face. It, no, it's a, it's a perfect point. Yeah, because if you had to harvest everything that was on your table, by that I mean harvest your fruits and vegetables and harvest your meat, i.e. slaughter or kill your meat, I guarantee I could make 90% of the population vegetarian overnight because nobody wants to kill. I'd be first in line. I would be like, no, I, <laughs> like, I'm eating the strawberries, I'm eating the lettuce, I'm eating the carrots, whatever else to not have to do that. No, it's definitely something when you're putting it putting it to the forefront. I encourage people to think about it. You know, think about it. This karma, I think this karma that's involved with the killing of other animals just to put food on your table, there's lots of great vegetarian, vegan alternatives out there. My view is that you take on some of that uh, suffering and that pain when you ingest um, animals that have been slaughtered. That's definitely some something to leave our listeners with that's for sure and to really evaluate yeah that's heavy but no it's definitely it makes you step back and think and i think that's why maybe um, my loss for words is coming into into effect here because you're really reflecting on your daily routines and the things that you've been doing and not really bringing bringing those other items that you mentioned into consideration so that's definitely something that people can take into the factor of their everyday choices. So before we close out on our episode, is there any final words you want to leave with our listeners? I would say, you know, think about non-harming. And if you can be one thing in this life, be kind. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on the episode with us today. And we hope you enjoyed yourself. We definitely enjoyed chatting with you. And I know our listeners will really enjoy this episode. Thank you so much, ladies. It's been a pleasure.